Welcome to the Mindful Birding Podcast, bringing you conversations and insights on the health benefits and joy of mindful birding. Brought to you by the Mindful Birding Network and your co-hosts, Holly Merker and Holly Thomas. Hello, everyone. This is Holly Merker, and we're so glad you're tuning in to the Mindful Birding Podcast. What is sustainability? It's a buzzword we hear often these days, but what does it mean to you? I've thought a lot about this subject and how we can apply it in our own lives by action-driven practices like recycling, turning off lights or water when not in use, or minimizing our carbon footprints to help sustain our ecosystems. But can we apply the word sustainability to our own self-care? And how can we utilize mindful birding as an element of self-sustainability? The Oxford Dictionary definition of sustainability is the avoidance of depletion of natural resources in order to maintain an ecological balance. If we switch some words around and change this definition to the avoidance of depletion of emotional and physical resources in order to maintain personal balance, this totally makes sense in the context of self-sustainability. In this episode, Holly and I chat with Sophie Crossley about self-sustainability through mindfulness and nature and how we can all access elements of our worlds, both outside and inside, to shine light on sustainability for healthier living. Sophie currently works as the content editor for Work in Mind, a UK-based organization dedicated to the connection between healthy buildings and workplace well-being, where there's a strong focus on biophilic design or incorporating elements of nature into a work and living spaces for the wellness benefits. Sophie is an accomplished freediver who seeks blue spaces for the mindfulness they bring and support of her own personal well-being. I know Sophie because she and I, along with Sophie's dad, Richard Crossley, co-authored the book, Ornotherapy for Your Mind, Body, and Soul, which came out in 2021. Our book was recently awarded a gold medal in the category of Mindfulness and Relaxation by the Living Now Book Awards, which chooses books for better living that enrich readers' lives and promote global sustainability. So it just made sense that we invite Sophie to share her insights and perspectives on these topics with us. Sophie brings a burst of positive energy and sunshine to everyone she touches, and it's a delight to bring her to you today. Welcome, Sophie. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be tuning in, even if it's from the other side of the pond. That's right. You're over there in Bristol, UK. So I know you're quite a quite a ways away, but this is the wonderful aspect of digital technology today is still being able to connect. And it's been great keeping up with what you've been up to these last couple of years, especially with your new professional direction. And it's been great to see your passion for nature connections and wellness driving your current professional work, uh, which also pairs well-being with healthy and sustainable workspaces. So with sustainability in mind, do you feel mindfulness in nature can play a role as a practice of self-sustainability? I really love this word that you've picked out centering on self-sustainability because 
I think for the majority of people, a lot of people associate the word of sustainability with something environmental, whether it's looking at fossil fuels or renewable energy or going vegan or vegetarian. But sustainability really transcends all of those concepts to something as simple as um, the routine that I have for myself. Is is that sustainable for me? Am I putting too much energy into this? And is it something that I can keep doing? And actually, one of my favorite quotes is from Wallace J. Nichols, who is the author of Blue Mind. I heard it in a podcast, so I'm pretty sure it's him. But if anyone listening knows otherwise, feel free to let me know. But the quote is, emotional well-being is the the foundation of sustainability. And for me, I really love that because it ties everything back into this concept of we're not doing anything bigger than ourselves if we're not first taking care of ourselves. And for me, I think that's really where kind of nature and mindfulness tie back in because those things are really therapeutic for us. In nature, we are from nature. I think so often we think, oh, we're separate from nature. I'm going in a walk in nature. I'm going to look at all of these other things. But we're a part of that bigger picture too. And I think it's only recently in the past hundred or maybe thousands of years that people have started to differentiate themselves from this concept of nature. And so for self-sustainability, I think one of the ways we refill ourselves or refill our cup or re-energize ourselves is spending time in nature and using mindfulness as a practice to hone in on that. You have birds all over the world. You have maybe not trees, depending on where you are, but there's always some form of nature that you can tap back into. And I think that as a form of self-sustainability would be just a fantastic thing to spread awareness about as a resource that everyone has. Yeah, this idea that our well-being is tied to the well-being of the natural world and that that it's really one in the same, which is the point you're making about we're not really disconnected from nature, although with our modern world, it often feels as if we are. And when we come back to that place, it really supports our well-being, our, the sustainability of our mental, physical, spiritual health, as well as the health and well-being of the planet and the world that we're a part of. While birds have been a strong chorus throughout the soundtrack of your life, you've also found the ocean and water as a powerful form of self-care. And that's something that I also share with you because I love snorkeling, scuba diving. So I'd love to hear more about how you see the ocean and water as providing a form of self-care, especially through free diving. And have you ever seen a bird underwater while free diving? <laughs> I guess I'll pull it back to the beginning for anyone who doesn't know what free diving is, because the first time I told my parents I was into free diving, they said, how the heck did you manage to get a scuba diving course for free? Which just sounds like the worst dad joke you've ever heard. But, but essentially, free diving is holding your breath in the water and swimming without any assistance from a breathing apparatus. So you don't have a, a tank attached to your back. You just have your good old lungs. And so I've always been someone who has found peace and enjoyment by the ocean, by the water, any form of water really. But free diving was where I really started to tie in this concept of mindfulness and blue spaces. And so for me, that looks like being in the water and then suddenly the world around you is quiet. You can't hear the cars. 
You can't hear other people talking. You also can't hear yourself breathing, partially because you're not. But, but really what it does is it eliminates the noise and you have to absolutely be present. Not only for the sake of just being where you are, but also physically, if, if your brain is above the surface somewhere else and you're not paying attention to how you're feeling or to the thoughts that you're having, you're wasting a lot of energy and your dive might change based on that. I mean, thoughts actually take up oxygen. Your brain is an organ and it requires oxygen to exist and function. And so the more you're thinking underwater, the, the more you're using up those oxygen levels. So initially for me, it's the, hey, I have to be physically and mentally present. And then beyond that, those tools help me carry carry mindfulness with me throughout the, the rest of the, the day too because I notice how present I am in that moment. But I was actually talking to a friend the other day about mindfulness and the practice of meditation and how she was like, I can't sit down for 10 minutes, you know, at a time and focus when I have so much going on on my plate. And so that practice might look different for everyone. It might be three minutes outside looking at your window, or, or it might be a quick walk in the park, or it might be a few quick deep breaths, really. And so having that space to find what works for you, incorporating nature, I think is a really beautiful thing. And then I'm going to say, I sadly haven't actually seen any birds underwater, <laughs> but when I was, so the last place I was living and working as a free diving instructor was Nicaragua and I was working in, it sounds kind of crazy, but it was a volcanic crater that had filled up with water over time. So it made this phenomenal ecological system for so many, I think there were over 200 species of birds within this ridiculously small radius. And so we had, we didn't have, but we saw this kingfisher almost every day when we were out on the water. We named him Arthur. Uh, he was our friend. <laughs> but even there, there were birds all over the coast. Holly helped me name the first one that I saw. It was a Montezuma or a Pendula and a turquoise-browed Motmot which are just these extravagantly beautiful birds. The turquoise-browed motmot has, it looks like a little pendulum on a grandfather clock and just bright colors. And then the Montezuma or pendulum has this ridiculously vivid yellow tail. So most of the time I just saw the yellow flitting back and forth along the water. So it all ties in really, you know, I say blue space, but you don't find a blue space without a bird on it or, or a dolphin swimming around or a fish. And so these all, they all really come back together. But blue space for me is all, I think has really been my calling place as much as I love everywhere else, but I'm a water bug and Holly, it sounds like you can relate to that too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I also, I just love being in the natural world wherever animals are. And if it's underwater, I'm looking at fish and coral and, anything else. And if I'm above water, I'm looking at birds or just whatever seems to be most abundant and trying to notice all the, all the little stuff too. Well, I just said all of, all of the little things are always so important to notice. And that ties back into mindfulness too. Every, every little movement, every little thing you're seeing outside, just, I think those are really great to take into appreciation as well. 
Absolutely. And especially this idea of just noticing and paying attention and allowing yourself permission to do so. It seems like we're so busy, you know, going from task to task that we don't often permit ourselves to just stop and pay attention and notice. And this is when those amazing discoveries can happen. And actually, like we were saying before, this is a way of transporting ourselves into the present moment and into this state of more mindful practices. And you learned mindfulness practices during college and um, access these techniques to help mitigate the stress and anxiety that this phase of life holds for most people. Um, And that insight and understanding allowed you to write the meditation explorations featured in our book, Ornotherapy for Your Mind, Body, and Soul. So can you explain how these practices can help students cope and offset the pressures and stress of this often really rigorous time of life? What worked for you? I found mindfulness actually at this point. So I had heard of it a little bit and I had some teachers at high school that were interested in it, but it wasn't until I got to college that I started actively building a practice. And as much as I would advocate for anyone to start at any point in time, I do really think it's pivotal that college students can have access to this practice because it's free and you can do it at any point in time. And so I remember being a college student. I was on a budget. I had a lot of work to do. I didn't have a lot of time and trying to find a way, you know, we were talking about that self-sustainability, trying to find something that recharged me with, you know, within my time limits and my financial limits was a bit of a struggle. And when I started to come across mindfulness, it, it really clicked for me that This isn't something that's just useful for college students, but for everyone else. And I think it brings back that word accessible again in that, you know, it's accessible through whatever is best for you, whether that's focusing on your breath, whether that looks like going for a walk or whether that looks like just getting up and turning around when you're in the middle of working on a paper. I think one of the biggest things that mindfulness can give to us, especially during the time of being at college, is that we start to notice some of our own behavior patterns. And what that looks like for me, for example, is I go, holy heck, I'm so busy right now. Do I need to be this busy? Am I filling my time as a distraction because I'm tired and there's something else I should be doing? Or... Do I find that I'm in a pattern of not taking enough time outside or not doing the things that are are recharging for me? And I think when we have the time to look at those things like you do in mindfulness or when you're out in nature and things are suddenly a little bit quieter, they help us set up these these guidelines and a self-understanding that moves with us throughout the rest of our lives too. So I think especially in college, having the opportunity to explore these pathways what looks restorative for me is immersing myself first of all in nature and then second of all if i have the option is being by the water and you know that looks different for everyone else i know i can imagine holly would really love to go for a walk through the woods i know you were doing a course on forest bathing and so can really appreciate everything that that environment has to offer. And, you know, we don't always have access to a whole forest or to a whole ocean, but finding those little pockets 
of green and blue spaces wherever you are can be just as important. I actually, I have, as well, this is a podcast, but if you could see, I have a bunch of plants in my room, probably more than a normal person should have, but I'll even just take a minute and pay attention to my plants, not in a weird way, but I mean, if you look at the texture of them or different shapes and sizes, just kind of a timeout for my computer screen, even if you don't have a tree in your backyard. It's like a little mini tree. It's a mini break. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, Sophie, when I was doing my training in forest therapy, this is one of the things that we learned. And you can actually practice forest therapy or forest bathing using houseplants because sometimes for some people, that's all they've got. If they have mobility issues or they're in a time in their life when they're not able to get outside. So I love that you're bringing that back into focus by by talking about how we can access the plants that we have in our homes to be a positive distraction and to bring us into a more present mindful moment using a natural living being. So I'm glad I'm not just a crazy plant lady who likes her plants (laughs) and that there's actually some science behind that. Absolutely, there is. And as you know, since you're working a lot with biophilic design and understanding how important it is for our well-being to be surrounded by other natural living beings, I mean, this helps us promote healing. There are so many studies that suggest that if we can look out a window or if we have a house plant or something natural, even a two-dimensional image available to us while we're trying to recover from some sort of physical trauma or surgery or illness, that this is beneficial and it aids and assists in how quickly our body can restore itself and the resilience of that. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all of these things are connected. And of course, you know, even just looking out a window, as you know, when we were writing the book Ornotherapy, it was important that all of the explorations and the meditations were uh, those which you could read um, and, and utilize just by looking out a window. One doesn't need to go outdoors in order to practice Ornotherapy. No, not at all. I think in our own ways, we all have access to something different you know, sounds, even online now, you can listen to different calls. There are actually some people who are mixing the sounds from natural spaces with music. I listen to it when I fall asleep. It's really relaxing. So Sophie, as someone under the age of 30, do you feel your generation is might be more in touch with self-care than, than previous generations? And can mindful birding or ornotherapy play a role here? Yeah, I think this idea of self-care is really important. And maybe I'm biased because I'm a little bit younger, but I do think that we have a stronger awareness of self-care and what that might look for us. But I have to say, I think the main reason for that is now we have the language that can help us have those conversations and the vocabulary to build our understanding around them. For me, it's it's been more normal to have conversations about, you know, I'm feeling this way, and why am I feeling this way? What can I do to refill my cup? What can I do to prevent this from happening again? In the future, I think it's only positive that we have the awareness and the vocabulary now to continue having these conversations. And then moving on from there, looking at 
what it is we need to do to make sure that people are are achieving these goals of maintaining their self-care. And I, I do really think that mindfulness through nature has such a big role to play in that area. I mean, as we've been talking about, and as you both know from all of the science, there are really only positive benefits that can come from spending time in nature. And, you know, one of the things I really love, because I'm a water bug, there's charity over here in the UK called The Wave Project, and they run in six-week cycles for kids who are under the age of 18 who struggle with self-confidence, anxiety, depression, and they take them surfing once a week for six weeks. Yeah, you're just out on the water, essentially on a piece of foam, and it's life-changing for people. You know, there are reports of kids feeling really happy again, or there was actually an example of a child who was mute at the beginning of the program and was talking by the end of it. And looking at these kinds of systems and programs we can put in place to support people in the different stages of life and different experiences they're having and where they might need support in those areas. I think whether it's something like Holly and you have both been working on, you know, going out for walks in nature together, showing them what they can look for, showing them how to listen and pause. All of those things can be done anywhere in the world, whether you're in a city or when you're whether you're out in the countryside. And I think that these means of practicing mindfulness and, and, and in essence, self-care really shouldn't be dismissed because they might not technically be medicine in the sense that it's made in a lab. But I think you would both agree and most people would agree that it is most definitely a form of medicine that can help us feel better, be better. And I think also one thing for me is like when you're in nature, I tend to feel small in the really nice way in that you're connected and you're bigger and you get this sense of awe, whether you're next to the ocean or you're next to a tree. And I'm like, how old is this tree and how small am I? But all of the big things and the small things play an equal part in making up nature. So kind of tying all of those things and making them accessible for people to to be able to have access to for self-care, for just also preventing kind of the need for self-care in terms of burnout. There's such a high rate of burnout nowadays, and we should be looking at preventive self-care just as much as reactive self-care for things like depression and anxiety. And um, nature really just has like such a huge role to play in that and mindfulness too. So there are a lot of things we can do. And um, it's a really exciting future, I think, as it's gaining momentum. And people like you are putting together great podcasts for for the message and, and spreading the cause to, to a wider audience as well. Yeah, th- thanks, Sophie. Yeah, we're, I mean, this is the whole point is just bringing people an awareness, like you touched on, just understanding and knowing and being aware that nature it can be there for us when we need it to access to help either clear our mind if we're having a hectic or busy day or you know to ground us if we're feeling unsteady or unstable or you know just to even soothe and comfort us particularly with now what we're seeing the effects of birdsong being measured by scientific research 
Uh, I mean, that in itself is so powerful, just the, the ability of listening and just paying attention to soothe and calm us. Uh, I, it's, it's just so fantastic in so many ways um, and that it is free and accessible to most people. As you pointed out, since birds are in environments with humans all across the globe, no matter what habitat, that makes them even more accessible and equitable in that same way, uh, just because they are can be found easily and readily. So it's, it's, it's a really exciting time. And I think your generation is going to carry this torch forward and illuminate what we are starting to pay attention to with regard to preventative care and preventative wellness, like you mentioned, um, and by using nature as, uh, as something to access to help us. Because two, when we start to pay attention and recognize the benefits, we're going to want to take care of the natural world. And, and this in itself is a reciprocal um, type of uh, relationship that we can have with birds and nature by being aware, paying attention, and paying gratitude. Yeah, most definitely. I think gratitude is a really good word that you use there. I really like gratitude. I think it's so important as that also, a gratitude practice in itself can be so helpful in developing skills to be aware and to practice mindfulness and just to notice what's going on all around us because things time moves quickly what we're doing goes by quickly the places we're moving to and cars when we're walking goes go by quickly but i think taking a moment to notice them is just as important as well sophie thank you so much for joining us it was delightful to share your insights and hear hear about everything that you're doing and and thank you sophie it it's always a pleasure to talk to you and I, I just really enjoyed our collaborative project of working on the book, Hornotherapy, together. And it's just wonderful to see you soaring out there and taking all of your ideas and practices to a different heights and a new level, bringing people more connectedness to nature in a variety of ways. So thank you so much for your time. Well, I have to say thank you to both of you. I've had such a fantastic time speaking with you. And I really just love the inspiring stories that you're telling and sharing with your audience. So I look forward to following along and thank you so much for having me. Happy birding. Now bringing you some mindful birding nerding, the science segment where we'll explore the growing body of scientific evidence on the health benefits of birding, time spent in nature, mindfulness, and other related topics. Blue is my favorite color. In fact, it's the most preferred color of people around the world. In our interview, Sophie Crossley mentioned the book Blue Mind by Wallace J. Nichols. I'd heard about the power of green space, but this idea of blue spaces was intriguing, so I read the book. Nichols defines blue mind as a mildly meditative state characterized by calm, peacefulness, unity, and a sense of general happiness and satisfaction with life in the moment. That description often fits with my experience while birding, 
And after all, while out birding, we often have expansive views of blue sky. And many times birds are found in association with water, whether it be oceans, lakes, riparian areas, or water features. Often where one finds water, one will also find birds. I wanted to learn more about what it is about blue. Blue spaces, blue light that draws us in. Is it something about the color blue? Something about the presence of water? Or both? Rather than taking a deep dive into a single study, I thought I'd give an overview of some of the key takeaways from the book. First, and no real surprise here, the presence of water seems to be associated with well-being. Nichols cites a series of studies on green exercise that showed even greater benefits to mood and feelings of well-being when there was also proximity to water. In another study, just five minutes observing an aquarium tank at the National Marine Aquarium in Plymouth, England, brought about a relaxation response, including lowered blood pressure and enhanced mood. Japanese researchers found that the sound of water running in a creek elicited changes in blood flow in the brain associated with relaxation. Blue light seems to have superpowers too. Blue wavelengths of light are known to be both calming yet energizing and to induce positive emotions, possibly through the release of dopamine and engendering feelings of euphoria, joy, and wellness. In another study, exposure to bright light in the morning improved functioning in brain areas associated with attention and memory, also increasing subjective feelings of well-being, reducing anxiety, and improving quality of subsequent sleep. It's important to note that exposure to blue light in the evening can have an arousing effect, interfering with the release of melatonin and resulting in poor sleep quality. Hence the directive to limit exposure to artificial lights, screens, and other blue light emitters later in the day or closer to bedtime. The book Blue Mind is full of many more studies about the positive impacts of water and blue light. So maybe next time you plan a birding outing, consider a walk to a stream, a lake, an ocean. Consider engaging your own blue mind. Until next time, I'm Holly Thomas, signing off from Mindful Birding Nerding. While we're on the subject of water, in some philosophies, an agitated or cloudy mind is likened to a pond or glass filled with muddy water. In his book, The Way of Zen, English writer and philosopher Alan Watts has some simple advice. Muddy water is best cleared by leaving it alone. And with that, I'll turn you over to professional birding guide Chris Benish from Field Guides with more Joy of Birdsong. This episode Soundscape finds us high in the Sierra Nevada of Central California. While hiking there recently with friends, we came across the hauntingly beautiful phrasings of a hermit thrush singing in the shade of some mature conifers. They surely must be one of North America's finest songsters. Sharing this magical soundscape 
were Western Tanager, Brown Creeper, and Mountain Chickadee. Tune in to our next episode when Holly and I take you on a special journey with us as we celebrate the joys of mindful birding, exploring the many different ways to enhance your birding experiences. Don't forget to check out our website, themindfulbirdingnetwork.com. Become a member, it's free, and join our growing flock of people interested in mindful birding. Stay up to date on our next gathering, our blog, and mindful birding events from around the world. And you can follow us on Instagram too, at Mindful Birding Network. We look forward to sharing time with you in future podcasts. And until then, we wish you happy mindful birding.